Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. This month's program, entitled Desperate Measures, is sponsored by Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing and features the music of Valentine Wolf. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. <laughs> When last we saw our doctor, she and her young protege were suiting up for one last attempt to sway Provost Cunningham to return to King's and not destroy the doctor's career whilst doing so. They set recall for 24 hours and set off to face their adversary. Abigail transmigrated into the body of an elderly woman who had died of a broken heart. That mysterious ailment which can genuinely lead to an abdication of life and which even doctors in my own time cannot adequately explain. Dr. Sage is in the body of a young woman in the same household who also died of heartbreak, but who had taken the more direct route of exsanguinating herself. Upon awakening in a tub of cold and bloody water, Petra realizes she has mere moments to save this body if she wishes to accomplish her mission. As Abigail moves to save the body the doctor has entered, I would like to take just a few moments to reach out to any of our listeners who are struggling with suicidal thoughts. You are not alone. There are people standing by to help, to listen, and support you. If you find yourself in a position of need, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or log in to a live chat at suicidepreventionlifeline.org slash talk to someone now, or text a crisis counselor at 741-741. No matter how you reach out, there are people who care and who want to listen. Abigail lifts the doctor out of the tub and places her on the wooden table in the center of the kitchen. She tourniquets the doctor's arms and sets to work stitching the open veins, working as quickly as possible. 
Once she has completed the surgery, she binds the wounds tightly and releases the tourniquets. You're going to need to drink a good deal of water, Petronella, and as soon as you're feeling strong enough, eat a little something. Let me see what I can find. Ah, there's a crop full of water here. It seems clear. Yes, it's good. Here, Petra, let me help you sit up. Now drink this. All right, I'll work on the next step. Abigail finds a small jar containing a jumble of small brown rocks that turn out to be lumps of turbinado sugar. This coarse brown sugar is very sweet and strong, and Abigail wastes no time dissolving a large rock of the stuff in a second glass of water for the doctor. Thank you. We should get going on our mission. We have 24 hours. We can spend a few getting you a little stronger before we venture out. I don't have to be very strong for this, and this body won't need to support me for long. Oh, I just had a thought. When did medicine first ligature severed veins? If this body is discovered after we leave, will the sutures present a problem? I've honestly never thought of that. We haven't had an injury requiring sutures before now. Still, surgeons have ligatured veins, muscle, and skin for centuries. I do not believe the method of knotting has changed much. I don't think anyone in this time is likely to investigate the body that deeply. You're probably right. I'm just borrowing trouble as I usually do. No, no, you are thinking of the things that I hadn't paused to consider, as you always do. Perhaps we would be wise to return the, to this house and position our bodies back in their places before we vacate them. You can snip the sutures then. Which reminds me, what did your body die of? Obviously something that you could take care of yourself. Nothing, as far as I can tell. She was in her bed. There was no effluvium, no echoes of pain or discomfort. She is quite elderly. Perhaps she just died in her sleep. We should all be so lucky. I'm beginning to feel a bit stronger. Perhaps we should get dressed. I'll find you a wrapper, but you need some food and rest before any strenuous activity. You're as pale as a ghost. <laughs> I am. I am a ghost. I just, I just thought... <laughs> I thought, we are ghosts. We haunt people. I'm a ghost. You're a ghost. We're all Though the doctor is hysterical from blood loss, she has a point. All this technology, <laughs> a transmigration, telesensation, it's at the root, uh, nothing more than a, a ghost manufacturing process. <laughs> An assembly kit for haunting. <laughs> Come work for the Chargé de Fer, where everything is insubstantial. How oh. did you learn university, Abigail? Basic possession techniques and a haunted for beginner's mother. Who wants to know? <laughs> I, 
<laughs> I think uh, uh, we'd better give the ladies a chance to pull it together. Uh, one side effect of the doctor's repeated visits to Cunningham has been the fact that my AI has isolated the signature of Mix Cunningham, or Michel as he is now known, and I can observe in a limited way his situation. Though I am not able to hear his thoughts, I can see what he sees and hear what he hears. If we are to fully understand the choice Dr. Sage is facing, should this final attempt to persuade the provost fail, perhaps we should try and understand this world as Cunningham himself sees it. The studio of Peter Paul Rubens, I will remind you, is a large Italianate mansion that he built with the specific purpose of serving as his studio. Therefore, in rooms that might serve the function of reception or dancing space, you will only find ranks of easels holding partially completed canvases scattered in place of furniture. The master painter himself often strides from canvas to canvas, making comments and giving guidance to his students who hold the brushes. Ah, yes, Pichil. This is better. The light on the clouds must come from the same direction as that on the trees. Thank you, Master. I'm attempting to capture that intensity of brilliance that glimmers for just a moment when the light first breaks through the clouds. For intensity, you must look to the contrast. Where is the darkest point in your landscape, and where is the lightest? Now, draw your eye from one to the other. Do that same in reverse. Do you see your problem? I have uh, moved too quickly from shadow to light. Exactly. Shadows do not release their hold easily. Your light will be more intense by marking those places it struggles to reach. Rather like life, no? We feel happiness strongest when we know its lack. Master Rubens has no idea just how true this statement is for Cunningham. He was miserable at King's College, but here, in front of this huge canvas, smelling of oil, pigment, and turpentine, well, he certainly appears to be far less agitated. The picture he is painting is a grand pastoral, a serene and beautiful countryside populated only with full-leafed trees, rocky crags, and a small group of cattle all congregated under a refulgent sun just breaking through a bank of clouds. If painting is metaphor, then Abigail's appeal will fall on the same barren ground as Petra's have. Cunningham's personal clouds have parted, and he is looking at a brand new day. We'll find out what happens after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the talented melodic expressions of the exquisite Valentine Wolf.
And now, back to our story. When we left our heroes, they were taking a brief rest to allow Dr. Sage's body to recover a small measure from severe exsanguination. Food, molasses sugar, and a period of rest has left her feeling strong enough to venture out, so the two scientists found appropriate clothing and set out into the city. There is a small tavern that I normally meet Cunningham in, but we must first stop at the market. There is a farmer there who supplies eggs for the maestro's paints. We'll send his boy with a message for James. They strolled along the boulevard, arm in arm, which appeared companionable from a distance, but was really because the doctor was still very unsteady on her feet and needed the support of her protege who in a somewhat ridiculous turn of fate was currently in the body of a stooped and wrinkled grandmother. Transmigration creates nothing so well as comedy. The city is much calmer than when I was here last. Are we here before or after the joyous entry? About six months after. Yes, the quieter, more business-minded Antwerp seems to be the default. Uh, we are long before the years of tourism overwhelming picturesque cities of this nature and the subsequent development of a permanent festival culture to entertain that traveling horde. Other than the occasional royal procession or harvest festival, most cities in Europe lead quiet lives. It is only we modern folk who filled our days with sound and fury. My goodness, that is cynical. Even for you, Petronella. Perhaps I need to get you to a place where you can have a sit down. I wonder if I could find you an orange at the market. I'm fine. Let's just find our boy and get a message to James to meet us in the usual place. Then I'll be able to sit in the shade as we await his arrival. Knowing better than argue with the doctor, Abigail did as she asked and a young boy was tasked with running to the studio of Menere Rubens to deliver a message for his student Michel. When Cunningham arrived at the rendezvous, he was more than a little irritated and for the first time in many visits addressed the doctor in a tone approaching his King's College demeanor. I say, Petronella, this is completely out of order. We spoke not 48 hours ago, and I was absolutely firm. To reappear again, to drag me away from my painting, is entirely disrespectful. Oh, uh, you are not alone. Uh, Erasmus, is that you? It is Abigail, Max Cunningham. Oh, Abigail. Another woman come to remind me of my responsibilities, of my duties, of all the reasons I am not to be allowed to live my life as I choose when I choose. I shall not be moved. Not at all, Michiel. That is the name you use here, correct? Michiel? I have come to understand your life here in Antwerp, to see your circumstances for myself and to confirm the good doctor's conclusion that you are truly happy here and that stranding you in this time and place would not be a cruelty. I do not believe it is fair to place this burden on Dr. Sage alone and that we must all approach the situation with complete honesty and a true understanding of the stakes for all people involved. You wish to take a tour of my life? Not so much a tour. Can I just paint a picture for me? What is your daily life like, for example? I sleep, I wake, I eat, I go to mass and I paint. Tomorrow I will do the same. Occasionally, after we have lost the light, the other painters and I will enjoy a little wine together or take a stroll along the Scheld. You have no authority here, is that correct? Only over myself. 
Do you not miss being in command? Oh, I thought I did at first, but uh, it soon became obvious that having authority was a habit, uh, not a vocation. I do not regret the loss of it. Your body is younger here than in our time, but the practice of medicine is very rudimentary in this time. What if you become sick? Illness is not restricted to any one time, and you well know that our surgeons are not proof against death. I have lived my life in fear, in the endless sea of what-ifs, constantly preparing for disaster. It took a disaster, an electrocution to be exact, for me to realize how pointless it is to live in fear. I do not fear death nor illness. I only fear losing the happiness I have found here. I fear the loss of this truth. To the doctor's surprise, Abigail pushed back her chair and stood up, offering her hand to the startled ex-provost. I am satisfied and heal. To allow your body to expire in our time would not be murder. You belong here, and I believe that it would be unfair and unethical to force you to return to a life you do not desire. Abigail, d do you mean that? Dr. Sage, will you agree? I agree. I meant every word. No recalling you. What about Erasmus? He won't go behind your back and force the issue, will he? I don't believe so. He seems quite specific that the choice and the weight of the sin are mine to bear alone. Oh, happy day! Oh, thank you for this visit, Abigail. Now be gone, the both of you, and never return again. Wait, Michiel. Are there any messages you'd like for us to pass along? Any words for Dr. McNeish or Dean Stewart? Or your mother? Tell them, tell them all I have contracted some type of strange infection in my travels this summer. That will play nicely to my paranoid mother, and she will have the great pleasure of writing endless I told you so letters to me in my convalescence. Then, when my body expires, you may send it to her. The emaciated state should remove any shadow of doubt, and burying that poor sort of a body will give her the drama she so craves. Oh, she will live to the end of her days as the poor widow woman who outlived a reckless son, struck down by evils contracted on foreign land. If only he had listened to her and had stayed close to home. If only he had been obedient. My boy, my boy! <sighs> <laughs> yes, uh, she shall dine happily on that tea to the end of her days. God save her friends and neighbors. Ladies, I bid you adieu. On that dramatic note, the erstwhile provost made a small bow to them, spun on his heel, and walked jauntily off into his future as a painter. That did not go as I suspected. I don't know why that should be the case. You needed to know if you'd be committing murder, and after speaking with Michiel, I believe James Cunningham is already dead. It is only his body that lingers. What a remarkable point of view. It is not remarkable at all. Are you any less patronal sage because you are currently sitting in the body of a suicidal Dutch girl? Do you feel any less yourself? I hadn't thought of it in those exact terms, but no, I am myself. So for you, these additional lives, these remarkable journeys are simply you wearing different bodies as others wear clothes. But for Michiel, he is newborn here. His life is so completely different. He has a freedom of expression, of thought so far removed from what he had before. 
It is as if he is an entirely different person. You were saying that I already murdered James Cunningham the moment I applied the electricity and sent him here to become Mikhail. I'm not sure that makes me feel better. Our heroes spent a lovely evening and night in Antwerp as they waited for the recall home. In spite of her words, Petra did feel a weight lifted, and she was confident that Abigail would help her convince Erasmus to see the truth. She was not a witting murderer, not a person who premeditated harm to others, and most especially not a person who let fear for her own career lead her to committing unspeakable acts. In the pre-dawn light, Abigail boiled a pot to heat the blood-tinged water in the tub. Then Petra climbed in, and they released the sutures that had closed her wounds. The arms did not bleed very heavily at this, because clotting had already closed the vessels. But Petra thought the warm water would loosen the clots enough that no one would realize the strange interrupted manner of her death, even if they bothered with a forensic examination. Petra was exhausted from the day, and drifted into sleep before the recall chimes could bring her home. Our travelers were greeted by the anxious face of the professor, huddling over their waking forms. Oh, there you are. Where did you go? I came to show you an artifact I came across, and I found you both transmigrated away. Where did you go? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you invite me? I'm sorry, Erasmus. Abigail wished to see James, so we went to Antwerp. You spoke to him, and he's coming home then, Abigail. Oh, good. I knew at once he spoke to someone he didn't have an adversarial relationship with that he would see sense and come home. Uh, not exactly, Professor. James Cunningham is officially dead. His body died? And you didn't send word? No. no, his body is fine. At least it was yesterday before we transmigrated. I'm sure it's fine. Are you telling me that the painter chap is dead? Well, in that case, James will be back with us here, in his own body. And without waiting for the ladies to disabuse him of this notion, Erasmus scurries off to check on the body of the provost. Oh dear, that didn't go as I had planned. He'll be back. Petra, I don't understand. If the painter fellow was dead, then why is James not back in his body? James, uh, Mikhail as he is now, is still in the painter's body. He is hale and hearty and loving life in Antwerp. But you said he was dead. I know death is no barrier to science, but I'm completely confused. That is my fault, Professor. <laughs> Why don't you make us all some tea and we'll get changed and we can give you the whole story, hmm? We will leave our trio as they discuss the differences between bodily death and the death of the soul and pause for a word from our sponsor. Hello listeners, Eddie Louise here, head writer of the Tales of Sage and Savant. I like stories that challenge me to think, introduce me to exciting new places and help me imagine a better world. This is the kind of stories we like to tell with Sage and Savant, and this is the kind of fiction published by our sponsor, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Featuring works by established authors and emerging new voices, Edge is pleased to provide quality literary entertainment, including Book One of the Tales of Sage and Savant, Transmigrations, in both Dead Tree format and in the language of our robot overlords. Or, as Edge likes to say, in both print and pixels. Look for books with the Edge logo at your local bookstore and online for Kindle, Kobo, Nook, 
iTunes and Google Play. Find your next great read at www.edgewebsite.com. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. Trust Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing for when you are desperate for a good story. And now, back to our show. Abigail and the doctor brought all their logical prowess to bear to help the professor see their point that James Cunningham was effectively dead, and the only thing to be gained by forcing Mikhail back to King's would be a secondary and even more traumatizing sort of death. Though Erasmus was hesitant to accept their reasoning, eventually he had to concede that there was no good answer to the ethical dilemma that Petra had created, and that perhaps it was better to let sleeping dogs lie. After much chat, they decided that it would be best to leave the life support intact and allow the body to expire as slowly as possible. This would mean no further direct action would be needed to cause death, and if the death of the body did result in the death of the consciousness, it would give Mikhail as many weeks as possible to enjoy this new life. That was the official version. Once Abigail and Erasmus had gone off to their own concerns, Petra set about enacting an idea that had come to her as she reclined in a bloody bath. She first went to Cunningham's office, convincing a janitor to let her search for a file she needed on the surgical trials for the galvanism paper she was writing. While inside the office, she not only claimed the file, but a small decorative paperweight and a spare office key she found in the drawer. Back in her laboratory, she locked the elevator and wheeled the provost's unconscious form into the main staging area. As usual, she talked to herself through much of this process. Both the initiative and the final tones will need to be in aeolian mode, but there will need to be different pitches. A is the bass pitch in aeolian, so I will start by sounding the A in the middle of the stave. That will remove my consciousness from my body, but hopefully not send it anywhere. I have the paperweight to serve as a psychometric totem, and I've removed the resonator from the Faraday armor I've placed on Cunningham. For the return tone, I will have the equipment sound the A an octave lower, with the added harmonics in the prayer bowls as usual. If successful, I will transfer my consciousness into the body of Provost James Cunningham. She's doing what now? Her thoughts have been racing a hundred miles an hour, and in the jumble of formulae and electric amperages and musical scales, I had not picked up on the exact nature of this experiment. Perhaps Petra had not even admitted to herself what she was going to attempt. This is madness! There are many possible applications should this transmigration work, but there is one that stands most prominent in my mind, that of the medical sciences. Imagine a surgeon being able to inhabit the body of an unconscious patient and feel the source of their pain, or to render a body unconscious in order to create a link and move a panicking patient to safety in earthquakes and other natural disasters. And the usual sound and fury accompanies this madness as the doctor attempts to enter the body of a person in her own time. It does not seem to work, so she increases the amperage. And still, it does not work. She ups the amperage again. The entire laboratory is now crackling with static electricity. The menagerie is getting flustered, and these birds and lizards had become almost stuporous in the face of the constant electrical overloads that occur in this lab. 
The doctor increases the amperage one more time, but still nothing. Mercifully, she powers down. Update. Attempt one was unsuccessful. I shall adjust the tones and try again. First adjustment, to invert the order and use lower tone first and higher tone second. I would love to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that a few unsuccessful attempts caused the doctor to give up on her insane idea and put away this madness. It did not. Three days of aborted tries later, she hit upon a solution. Update. No individual pitch in the Aeolian mode has worked. So now I will try to use a tremolo between A and C, both for the exit and the entry. I will use the middle staff tones for exit and an octave lower for re-entry. Tremolos create diaphanous sound waves, and perhaps the tension in that musical expression will provide the correct sine wave behavior in the electrical current to engender the desired results. Once again, the laboratory fills with the ozone scent of electricity, our eardrums hum with the crackle of lightning, and the hair on Petra's body stands on end as the dynamo whirls and spins with blue energy. A new tone fills the air as bows engage on two of the cladney plates slightly out of time with each other, the mechanical arms moving faster and faster until the sound rises and trembles in the air like the shaking limbs of a willow tree. Lightning crashes down the copper leads and engulfs the doctor in a nimbus of blue light. Everything reaches a fever pitch and... Good gracious, dear listeners, I think she has done it! The doctor, in the form of Cunningham, reaches over and flips the switch to engage the Edison device. Update. Translateral animation is a successful using tremolo pitch A to C. Unlike transmigration, which moves the consciousness through time and space, this consciousness removal creates a physical sense of being torn, similar to the pain of torn skin or ripped muscle. There is also a bit of a funhouse mirror effect when I look at the body of Petronella Sage. I assume this might be thanks to the fact that the body I occupy knows the doctor in her original form, knows me in my own body and is grappling with the fact that this person, which was exterior to the body, is now interior. <laughs> Cunningham, Sage, this body, is vomiting from the disorientation of translateral uh -huh. animation. The overwhelming physical reaction to this is of wrongness, as if some piece of the universe has been put out of place. Nausea and disorientation are quite severe in this form, but there's no way for me to tell if this is a product of the long, unoccupied state of this body, or if it is a side effect of the translateral animation itself. Only further experimentation will clarify that. For now, I will pull myself together and attempt movement in this body. Petra unbuckles and moves to a sitting position on the edge of the gurney. Cunningham's narrow chest moves in jagged bursts, as if breathing does not come naturally. She sways in place a moment and then dares to stand. Her legs buckle and she ends in a heap on the floor. The muscular atrophy has progressed farther than Petra had realized, and she slowly comes to understand that her intention of walking around the laboratory was not realistic. She drags herself into a sitting position, panting with the effort. She reaches up from her position on the floor and hits the switch on the console that would trigger the recall. Those strange dual tones ring out, this time an octave lower and layered over with the harmonics of the prayer bowls. The doctor returns to her own body, thank goodness. 
The body of James Cunningham is too weak to sustain activity as muscular atrophy is far advanced. I will need to create some sort of resistant pulley system that I can use to exercise his limbs in order to bring his strength and flexibility back to serviceable levels. I shall get a system built this week and try translateral animation once again in a few weeks when the body is stronger. Dear listeners, that is the end of this file and it is the end of my working day. But I will never be able to sleep if I do not find out what happens with this line of inquiry. Computer, can you search the records for the next instance of translateral animation, please? Searching. I find four additional references to translateral animation in the files of Dr. Petronella Sage. However, they are reference notes only. We can get a visual and limited sound but there is no way to establish a full telesensate link. Each note is about one minute long. Would you like me to load them in order? Just the first one for now, please, computer. Loading. The scene that comes up on my screen is the laboratory. Some time has passed because all is clean once again. All of the summer debris has been cleared and everything is neat and tidy. The sound of recent transmigration echoes, the cladney plates still vibrating with the strange double tone of translateral animation. James Cunningham sits up from the slab, carefully not looking at the other body. He unhooks from the machine and moves back to the dressing room to change into street clothes. When he emerges, it is the provost we have all learned to think awkwardly about. The sexist and the painter, the authoritarian and the free spirit. Only. The tilt of his head is that of the doctor. The fall of his footsteps is her determined tread. This must be Dr. Petronella Sage wearing the rehabilitated body of James Cunningham. She crosses to the elevator, closes the gate, and descends. Whatever can she be thinking? Cunningham, whatever are you doing in Petra Sage's sleeping closet? Dean Stewart, Petra Sage, how, how dare you spy on me? What madness is this? Has Petra lost her mind? What good can come from not letting this body expire as everyone had agreed? We'll have to wait to find out in a future episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. Tales of Sage and Savant is a twin star production brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. The theme song for season three was interpreted and recorded by Valentine Wolf. Special music in this episode was provided by Valentine Wolf. Check them out at www.valentinewolf.com. That is Wolf with an E. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Episode 302, Desperate Measures, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook, or check out our website, sageandsavant.com, to find the facts behind the fiction. 
And finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science.